This is a Behind the Panels one-shot. I'm Richard Gray. Green Arrow is the reason why I got into comics. He's uh, my favorite character. It um, always has been, even from the time when I was a kid. That is, of course, legendary comic book artist and writer Mike Grell, creator of The Warlord and John Sable Freelancer. But he's probably best known for his reworked version of DC Comics' Green Arrow, which is the reason that I'm into comics. Starting with the Longbow Hunters and carrying on for an 80-issue series that spanned the 80s and the 90s, Grell redefined the character in a way that still influences the tone of the CW TV series Arrow. Yet Grell's ties with Arrow and DC go all the way back to the 70s, when he virtually walked into the DC Comics offices in 1973 and landed a gig on Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. He quickly became a fan-favorite artist and cemented his reputation when he was given the opportunity to take over from Neil Adams and work with Denny O'Neill on the historic Green Lantern, Green Arrow team-ups. The idea that I was able to get the, the gig to, to uh, uh, be lucky enough to uh, reintroduce the, the uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow series when it came back. I was fortunate. I was in the office the day that Denny O'Neill decided he was going to bring it back. I heard the rumor in the hall when I went straight to his office and said, okay, who do I have to kill? <laughs> and uh, that was sort of the, the, the culmination of my initial goal was to be able to work on that book. While working at DC, Grail would also make a mark during the 70s for the creation of The Warlord, about an Air Force pilot who crash lands into a hidden savage world. Well, it was actually based on a, a comic strip that I was trying to sell at the time that I broke into comics um, called The Savage Empire. And Savage Empire was about an archaeologist who's uh, catapulted back through time and winds up in Atlantis before it sank. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, at that time period, nobody was buying anything resembling uh, an adventure comic strip anymore. It just was not happening. So I went out to New York, and I was pretty dismayed because I couldn't even get a, uh, an appointment to speak to one of the newspaper editors. They just they were not interested at all. Um, but there was... Uh, comic convention going on, New York Comic Con, 1973, where I met uh, several people from DC Comics, including um, Irv Novick, who was drawing Batman at the time, Alan Asherman, who was the uh, uh, editorial assistant for Joe Kubert, and uh, those guys looked at my portfolio and told me in no uncertain terms to get my carcass up to Julie Schwartz's office and talk to him. Um, which I did, and uh, walked in with my prepared encyclopedia salesman speech that goes, Good afternoon, Mr. Schwartz. Can I interest you in this deluxe 37 volume set of Encyclopedia Britannica, complete with annual yearbook and calendar? And if you get interrupted anywhere along the line, you have to go all the way back to Good Afternoon, Mr. Schwartz, right? That's exactly how far I got. Good afternoon, Mr. Schwartz. And Julie says, what the hell makes you think you can draw comics? <laughs> and I unzipped my portfolio, dropped it on his desk and said, take a look and you tell me. And uh, Julie called Joe Orlando in from next door and uh, they put their heads together. And I walked out a half an hour later with my first script in my hand, my first assignment. 
Now, while I was at that convention in New York, um, Saul Harrison, who was then the president of the company, was there reviewing portfolios, and I left him a copy of my portfolio with Savage Empire in it, and went off and forgot about it. About five years later, the mail slot opens up, and in comes this package from DC Comics. I didn't remember sending them anything that size, so I open it up, and there's my portfolio, Savage Empire. Um, and uh, it was uh, attached to a form letter rejection slip saying, thank you very much for your submission. Unfortunately, it does not meet our current publishing needs, which is funny because with a name change and a locale change, they had been publishing it for five years under the title The Warlord. And it was, at, at the moment, it was their top selling book. <laughs> Elements of The Warlord were later to be reincorporated into his post Longbow Hunter Green Arrow run. So not only did the characters share an uncanny resemblance and beard, uh, they'd also share a panel in Green Arrow number 27 in the late 80s. Following Crisis on Infinite Earths, the scene would be set for a new kind of Green Arrow. As years went by, I moved on to other companies and uh, uh, had, had left Green Arrow well behind. I got a phone call from my old friend and uh, editor from First Comics, who's Mike Gold. We did Sable together, mm. and uh, Mike had uh, just started up at, uh, at DC Comics, and he phoned me up and said, look... Is there anything you'd like to do over here that, that any character that you like well enough to bury the hatchet and come back to DC? And uh, my first reaction was to say that I always felt that I did such a crappy job on Batman in the 70s that I'd like another whack at it. But I had just spoken to Frank Miller the week before, and Frank was just beginning to write The Dark Knight. And uh, I said, you know, when Frank's done with The Dark Knight, you can put a period at the end of the Batman sentence for the next 10 years. Turns out I'm off by 10 years in comics so far. <laughs> and uh, Mike Gold said, well, think about this. Green Arrow as an urban hunter. And I went, yep, that's it. That was Those six words were what I based everything from the Longbow Hunters on through the Green Arrow series. Um, and... Uh, to be, to be uh, at the at the uh, latter end of my career and be right back where I started, it's great. It's great, like going home. <laughs> Grell's not directly involved in the TV series that he's run inspired, but he's illustrated and provided covers for some of the tie-in comics. That said, his fingerprints are all over the show, and that's given a new life to some of those original stories as well. Well, unfortunately, I don't have any input on the series at all with the exception of that wanted poster mm. that they use every every week. Um, I do that, and uh, uh, apart from the inspiration that my work on Green Arrow presented to the creators of the show, I really can't claim any credit for it, except to say, I'm the guy who gave him the hood. <laughs> with the exception of Longbow Hunters, we haven't had 
any of your run in reprints uh, until this year. Does it? Does it? Uh, final? Is that finally a relief to see those things coming out slowly in, in trades? Uh, yes, especially since I get a check. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a, a case of what goes around comes around, mm. and eventually people will um, uh, remember the, the stuff that was good and popular back in the day and go, you know, we haven't printed this for a long time. They're doing uh, the Legion of Superheroes. Mm. Uh, they're doing the gradually doing all of the Green Arrow, which is pretty good. Um, I wish they would do a hardcover version of the Longbow Hunters. I wouldn't love for you. Yeah. Just because I'd love to have it hanging on my bookshelf myself. Would, would something like one of those oversized uh, art books be appropriate, do you think, for, the, for that kind of it story? would if they could run down all the artwork. <laughs> it's, you know, I don't have any of it anymore. Despite their similarities and differences, if there's one thing that ties Grell's characters together, it's an approach that focuses on the human side of his protagonists. His Green Arrow, for example, famously took powers and other superheroes out of the equation, isolating Ollie and Black Canary in a real-world urban playground of Seattle, which is actually where this interview took place. Similarly, his original character, John Sable, might be an athlete and a mercenary, but he's still just a human. I try to focus on the, the character over the action. Yeah. I mean, the action is important, but the uh, characterization is really primary. You can, you can build, a, like, for instance... One of my favorite bad examples is the Rambo movies. First Blood, great story, great development of the character. You're introduced to him, he goes through a change. He's different at the end than he is at the beginning. Then comes Rambo 2. Rambo 2 is all about shoot him up, bang, bang. But it's fun. And I'll, I'll, I'll give it that. You know, it was, it was successful and it was fun. Then comes Rambo 3, where they throw out all the characterization, all the motivation, all the things that make a good story, and just decided, watch us blow stuff up. And that's what it was. Uh, my other favorite bad example is Ocean's Eleven versus Twelve and Thirteen. Ocean's Eleven, they introduced all the characters. Ocean's Twelve, they figure, ah, you've already seen Ocean's Eleven, you wouldn't even be here, right? So, character development mm, lagged quite a bit behind. Ocean's Thirteen, no character development whatsoever. It's just a heist movie and not a very good one at that. So, um, I, I tend to focus more on, on the characters and try to get inside them so that the audience will care about it. Now, the, when I did Sable, the, uh, the sort of standard for the industry was um, page one, introduce the hero. And page two, introduce the hero's family. Page three, the hero's family gets killed. Page four through 95, revenge, right? So with with the Sable story, it, it is a revenge story, but I took several issues before I got around to actually knocking off his family. And when I did, I felt like I was actually killing my own family. I mean, these people had come to life for me, and I had... 
I had people write to me going, I don't believe you did that. <laughs> when, yeah, well, it, it's necessary for the development of the character. Just like in Longbow Hunters, um, mm-hmm. hanging Diana from a forklift yes. and, and putting her through all of that was a necessary step in the evolution of Oliver Queen mm. to get him away from the sort of ultra-liberal um, goody-two-shoes I will never take another human life mm. you know, attitude that, that Denny had Denny O'Neill when he was writing it there, there was a whole storyline where uh, Oliver Queen accidentally kills a guy and uh, goes off and yeah. becomes a monk, you know, goes to a monastery, uh, withdraws from society, more or less. And uh, I thought, no, in order to do the kind of stories that I wanted to do, set in the real world where bad things happen to good people, um, I needed to take the character through a change. And so I put him into a position where people could relate because if something like that happened to someone that they loved, they at least want to think that they would probably do the same thing, react the same way. And it had to be dramatic, traumatic, in order to make him turn away from everything that he had been spouting, espousing, I guess, uh, for so long, and make him a cold, hard killer. And even at that, um, I, I didn't pass it off. I didn't make it like, okay, he kills a guy, next episode, forget it, right? You know, forget all about it. Um, that incident affected him and his relationship with Dinah. Um, the, early on, I in Longbow Hunters, I established that they had a great sex life. Yeah. Uh, but all of a sudden, after this incident, she can't stand to be touched, even by somebody that she loves. Mm. And uh, not only did that affect her, but that whole incident affected him, yeah. even though he denied it. You know, he was in denial for a long time, but really, it's like I, I, I did a, a metaphorical stepping off a cliff. Yeah. You can't unjump, right? One of the things I loved about that run is that it is that relationship between Dinah and Ollie, that 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 notion. I mean, they even go to therapy at one point to kind of work right, out right. those sort of issues, right. and I and I found that a really a particularly real depiction of a couple, not just yes. a a couple of superheroes, but an actual couple. Um, the, the not to compare them too much, but the current take on on from DC seems to be to keep couples as far apart from each other as possible. Do you, do you think that there's something necessary about his, his relationship with Dinah to make that character work, or, or to indeed have those connections um, full stop? Or do you think he works better or worse as a solo character? I think. Ollie and Dinah together are better than either of them apart. Um, the, the, the problem with relationships in comics is that 
a lot of the writers don't seem to understand how to do a story where people are functioning uh, as a couple without marrying them off. They feel compelled to, to marry them off. And that's the death knell. Um, w- one of two things happens. Either the wife immediately gets pregnant or is killed off or, you know, something happens. Uh, when they when they married uh, uh, Ollie and Dinah in the regular series, I went, this will never last. <laughs> that book will be gone within a year. And, you know, I was off by about six months. Yep. You know, I was being maybe a little overly charitable. Um, it happened on several television series uh, in the U.S. Uh, there was one called Moonlighting with Bruce Willis and Sybil uh, Shepard. Yeah, of course. They had a, a great dynamic relationship until they married them off. The end, right? And then they get married. They struggle through one more season where the only thing they can think to do is, oh, now they got to have a baby. Yeah. And... You know, that, that that's about it. Magnum P.I., they did the same thing. Yes. Um, they actually uh, killed him off yeah, for a season. Yeah, steal, you know? <laughs> yeah. Nothing else to do. We're out of ideas. We surrender. Let's marry him off. <laughs> Mike Grell is still working on several projects. He hasn't surrendered, and Green Arrow isn't the only character he's had a chance to return to. It was previously a short-lived TV series. His John Sable character is still in development for a feature film. Unfortunately, um, the wheels of the Hollywood machine not only turn slowly, sometimes they just don't turn at all. Um, there's been constant interest. Uh, I, have a, I have a director who wants to do it. I have a star who wants to do it. That's two points of the trio that you need. Now I need a guy to write the check. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it, it seems to be a little on the difficult side to, to put that final bit of an equation together. Um, but yes, uh, hope does spring eternal, and eventually it'll get done, I'm sure. Um, I've written a screenplay, worked on it with a director, and we fine-tuned it over a couple of years, and several different variations of it and it's pretty tight it's, it's pretty good it's not the same as uh, what you read in the comic books and it's not the same as what you read in the novel although it does draw from both of them um, I just didn't want to take the readers to that well too many times so they go oh well we know how this goes right yeah. if, the, if the movie gets done they'll be in for a surprise because it's not the same. I just finished a, a Tarzan story for Dark Horse Presents called Tarzan and the Gods of Opar that I wrote and drew. And uh, my old friend and cohort, uh, Mark Ryan, who is uh, uh, one of the stars of Robin of Sherwood, the television series, he played Nazir. He does the voices for Bumblebee, Jetfire, and Lockdown in the Transformers movies. Um, recently appeared as Mr. Gates on Black Sails, the Pirates mm-hmm. over Michael Bay. And uh, uh, we did a project together that uh, fell afoul of uh, publishers who simply ran out of money uh, before we even got the third issue finished. And uh, it's called The Pilgrim. 
and we are resurrecting the pilgrim. Should be out again um, in the fall. Who's that coming out through? Is that a self-published, or is that coming out through an established publisher? It's it's coming out. Uh, Going to be released through a, an outfit called Strict Nine Studio. Look out for that's coming out in the U.S. fall. Um, is there a character you've you've worked on a lot of established characters? You've worked on original, and you've obviously created your own original characters. Is there someone over the years that you've always wanted to to play with and have never had the chance? Captain America. Captain America. Captain America. Yep. What is it that appeals about Cap? Well, one of the first comic books I ever saw was my dad's World War II copy of Captain America. Wow. It may still be in a box up in the attic. I'll have to go look. Um, it just it, it appeals to me. Um, my take on Captain America would be uh, different from what's being done currently. I would want to focus on the the harsh contrast of a man from World War II era waking up Rumpelstiltskin in uh, the 21st century and explore the difference between the the two eras, the entire outlook and attitude of the American way of life. Um, so, not blowing smoke here, but it's one of the things that I really enjoyed about Australia. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in the 1950s, and when I was in Australia in the 80s and 90s, I found Australia and Australians to be very much like America was in the 50s. Um, if, if you were a stranger in town, you weren't a stranger for very long. Uh, if you needed help, somebody was always willing to lend you a hand. One of my pals drove across the... the, the well, he started in Sydney and wound up in Perth. Um, and somewhere along the line in the, in the middle of nowhere... His car broke down with his wife and brand new baby on board. And just at the point where they're wondering, you know, what happens next. Over the hill comes an old Volkswagen bus painted with peace symbols and flowers driven by some transplanted hippie. The guy pulled over before he even came back to the car, he got out his toolbox, and that guy's wife sat and uh, uh, gave Tracy and the baby cool drinks, talked to them while the husband repaired the car, they got back in and off they went. Don't tell me there are no such thing as angels, you know? There might have been a a leftover hippie, somebody uh, transplanted from Haight-Ashbury or San Francisco (laughs) or wherever that car came from it was loaded with angels and and you you don't see that anymore I mean it used to be that way in the US when I was a kid I could hitchhike anywhere I wanted to go if, if it was not only safe it was an acceptable means of transportation people would stop and pick up a kid on the road and go where are you going I'm going to the lake to go swimming. Well, hop in, you know. Save you three miles of walking. And we never thought anything about it. Nowadays, I mean, 
even to the driver, you're taking your life in your hands by picking somebody up, let alone trying to hitchhike on the road. The world has changed, times have changed, and I don't know. I don't know where we're going from here. Uh, if you ever saw the the movie or read the book, No Country for Old Men, it does. That's really actually the the point of the of the sheriff's character is that he's lived through that change, and at the end of it, he realizes that he's got to get out because this is No Country for Old Men. Hopefully, well, we'll find some way to get our soul back. And that's what I would do with Captain America. That sounds wonderful. I mean, you have dealt with other Marvel characters in the past. Uh, of course, you did Iron Man uh, once upon a time. And I think you're saying that that was something that you uh, took very much took that attitude of... Thank you very much. Thank you. Very much took that attitude of, of, of pulling him back to his, his, his simplest yes. Uh, yes. level. Uh, yes, the the suit had become so all powerful. Tony Stark himself had turned into Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I thought that was I thought that was wrong, but the the suit had essentially made him Superman. And yeah, there have been some great Superman stories told, but really, it's hard to get emotionally invested no. in somebody who can't be harmed, right? So I, I put back the inherent weakness where he has to recharge his batteries literally every 24 hours or, or he could die. And I also uh, added in uh, another aspect, which is that in a time of crisis, he could use his heart energy to run the suit at the risk of his own life, knowing that he could die, right? So then it becomes personal sacrifice. And uh, I wanted to turn the focus away from the suit and focus on the man inside the suit, which is why when um, they announced the Iron Man movie, uh, I was trepidatious because I thought the, the, the Hulk movie was like watching a video game and not a very good one. And uh, I was afraid that they'd do that with, uh, with uh, Iron Man. But they stayed inside. They, they stayed inside the suit. Even when they showed the action scenes, they cut to the close-up of Robert Downey Jr. Uh, inside. They never let you forget that there was a man inside that suit. And uh, one, of, one of my approaches was I saw it that the suit was the armor that protected him from the dangers on the outside, but it also isolated him from the rest of humanity, from the rest of the world. And uh, I, I made that part and parcel of my stories, trying to get back to the man inside the iron as much as possible. If you've listened to their, our show before, you know that I'm possibly one of the most dedicated Green Arrow fans in the Southern Hemisphere, and fans like myself would undoubtedly love to see Mike Grill return to Green Arrow, a character that he's still very much closely associated with. In fact, during this interview, he was sketching an original Longbow Hunters-style image for me, one of many he'd commissioned to do that weekend and undoubtedly over the last few decades. So I was curious to know what Grill's take would be if he ever returned to the book. A couple of things that struck me when you were talking is one, uh, the notion when you were talking about No Country for Old Men, the, 
the notion of coming back to a character years later and it was something that you almost did with with uh, Longbow Hunters in many ways. It was about returning to an older version of it and Ollie coming to that realisation himself. But do you would you ever envisage you lo- wanting to return to a character I've been beyond the, the sort of tie-in comics you're doing now with Arrow, the returning to a character like that and seeing how age has affected him and how um, the changing times have affected him? I would love to go back and, and do Oliver Queen's Longbow Hunter's version, you know, 30 years later. Yeah. Now, okay, not 30, because technically speaking, he would be 75. Yes. Um, In fact, the character turns 75 next year. Yeah, next year. Right, right. That was, that was part of it. Um, I, I felt that it was sort of essential to age the characters as you go along. Because that that sets them firmly in the real world with the rest of us. You know, we all have our heroes, but it's as different as our heroes are from ourselves. It's the similarities that make us love them so much. And uh, I would love to go back and and do Ollie and Dinah. You know, pick up not necessarily exactly where I left off, but down the road. You know, here they are down the road, and this is what their life has been. And and I would have them still together with no problem at all. And I think the I think the readers would be right for it. Well, I for one would be uh, Mike Grell. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you here at Emerald City Comic Con, and uh, lovely to meet you. Thank you. So there you go, DC. Mike Rill is willing to return for a Green Arrow comic, and I think I speak for all Green Arrow fans when I say we'd love to see that. Also, I'd just like to thank Mike Grill for his time and generosity in chatting with me at uh, Emerald City Comic Con uh, in Seattle. You can find more about him by visiting mikegrill.com or visiting some of the links we've got in our show notes. Hi, this is Mike Grill from Emerald City Comic Con, and uh, I want to tell you that I just finished doing a great interview for Behind the Panel. Give it a listen. You'll enjoy it. If you've enjoyed this interview, be sure to check out our weekly podcast, which is Behind the Panels, uh, where we dive into the news, latest releases, and, of course, our kick-ass pick of the week on every single show. You can find it on behindthepanels.net or subscribe on iTunes. We've also got a seven-part series of articles up there on the history of Green Arrows. uh, That's on the site, and I'm sure people who listen to this show will probably enjoy that as well. This has been a Behind the Panels one-shot. Behind the Panels is a production of geekactually.com.